0: Buddy, we're back. Well, me and Derek are back. I don't know how many times this is for Derek. What, like, ninth, tenth time?
1: I think something like
0: that, yeah. Yeah. Well, we are back. Uh, this is the first time I am recording with my actual microphone on my desktop, because I had to move my desktop to my couch, where I have a bigger desk, using it as a coffee table, and... Uh, and it won't be one of the classic late middle period Derek and Felix episodes where I sound like I'm recording from a studio laced with aluminum foil.
1: <laughs> Producer's note, he does.
0: I don't know why, but he still does. I'm sorry. I'm trying to fix it.
1: Anyway, back to them. I don't know that's that's like listening to vinyl. people may get nostalgic
0: yeah there was a there was a crackling quality to it that people <laughs> seemed to enjoy, but we're i mean we're back for i wouldn't really call it like a fun past month mm. but a, a a little bit a little bit our our favorite bilateral relation has sort of dominated the international news a little bit America and Turkey,
1: yeah, it's been a l- bit of a bumpy ride for for a few weeks here. So America
0: is mad at Turkey. We're mad because they detained Andrew Brunson, American pastor. We have him on – they have him on house arrest over there. Right. Um, Erdogan alleges he's linked to Fito. uh, And of course, Mike Pence just wants him back, just wants a good evangelical back. Donald Trump has been told that he wants him
1: back. <laughs> He's been informed, yes.
0: Yeah, and it's caused a big rift. Um, the sort of backdrop to this is Turkey's massive, massive monetary crisis. Uh, the lira has been in a tailspin against the dollar. The Brunson crisis has made it worse, but it's not really the impetus for this whole thing. The impetus really is that Turkey's experiencing – Inflation, which wouldn't be as big of a problem if it wasn't for uh, Turkey's companies borrowing such a high volume of foreign money to fund their rise during the growth years under Erdogan. And also, Erdogan has a sort of bizarre, sort of right in some areas. I get not really right, but makes you think. Thoughts on interest rates. Erdogan hates interest
1: rates. Right. He hates raising interest rates because um, he just has this very sort of dogmatic belief that you should never have to raise interest rates. The only reason uh, that anybody wants to – it's like the rest of the world is attacking Turkey, which is the image that he projects pretty much all the time, That that everybody's out to get him and everybody's out to get Turkey. Uh, but the idea is that the rest of the world wants to force Turkey to raise its – or force Turkey's central bank to raise its interest rates so that it can strangle Turkey's economy and bring the, the mighty Turks to their knees. Um, you know, I mean there's there's certainly arguments – to be made about the role of central banks and when is it appropriate to raise interest rates and we have these debates in the United States all the time because our Fed is like hair trigger ready to raise interest rates at any sign of inflation and it has a, a, a perverse or kind of inverse effect on the labor market and uh, there are a lot of people who I think correctly think that uh, the Fed which technically has the dual mission of full employment and controlling inflation should ease up a little bit on the inflation concerns, uh, and keep interest rates low in order to to spur higher, you know, higher levels of employment. Um, but Erdogan is sort of dogmatically uh, in the other direction. And I'm, I mean, I'm certainly not an economist, so I couldn't tell you if uh, he's really got a leg to stand on. But it seems like, uh, you, you know, there comes a point, especially when you're, Dealing, you're talking about a country whose currency is not the main global reserve currency and is subject to the the whims of currency markets far more than the dollar is. Uh, There comes a point where you need to bend a little bit and maybe raise interest rates to keep keep inflation in check. And he's refusing to do that. Well,
0: Erdogan has this – He actually – there is a theory that he follows about inflation and interest rates and it's actually very interesting. He – this was – this theory kind of like went extinct about like 40 years ago. It was popular in Latin America in the 60s and 70s. It was the structuralist view of uh, central banking, which is that uh, raising interest rates actually results in inflation because – Businesses who have their immediate inventory paid for in higher valued currency will end up raising the prices and then passing it down to consumers, which like, I'm sure has been true in some cases, but it's just like,
1: yeah, I mean, it's- he,
0: he, he also, you know, dogmatic is a good way to describe him because he just at every banking, a, a anytime anyone asks him a question about it, like every famous, this past, couple months, people got mad at him for raising it by a quarter of what they said needed to be raised. But of course, the people saying what they needed to be raised were institutional investors, which is right. a polite thing to call speculators. Yeah. Absolute bloodsuckers. But you know, he he yelled at them and he went, "Oh, you, you think raising rates will slow things down? It just speeds things up! Which is like not uh, usually not true. And also... Inflation. I mean, inflation. I feel like it's sort of been a conscious effort of American uh, right wing economics to make inflation always a bad thing. I mean the the silver the silver debate over a hundred years ago was about inflation kind of being better for poor people because they were typically. Farm debtors. Right. And it would mean that they would have an easier time paying back their debt.
1: Right. And, and it's it's sort of I mean, you're on a continuum, right? I mean, nobody wants right. like a million percent inflation like they're seeing in Venezuela. But at the same time, there there is a, a healthy debate to be had over what is the appropriate level of inflation that really provides the maximum economic benefit, and I don't think zero is it, but it's sort of become doctrine in the United States that that you want to just – uh you, you should just panic at any sign of inflation, mostly because the people who get hurt by, you know, like 3%, 5% inflation are, you know, Wall Street assholes, basically. Right. And,
0: and then, of course, like the higher it goes, it definitely – it obviously hurts other people. It obviously hurts consumers, lower – like people in the working class, people in the underclass, obviously. And It ends up sort of functioning like a sales tax almost. But uh, this sort of like William Jennings, Bryant view of inflation doesn't really hold though with Turkey's situation because so much of Turkey's like hot growth period – it had to do with a lot of these huge firms in Turkey borrowing a lot of money from other countries. And the more their currency gets devalued against the currencies they borrowed, the bigger problem it is. But, you know, um, Erdogan's taking it in stride.
1: He, <laughs> yeah, he, he, he had, takes a lot of things in stride. That's what he's known yeah, for. <laughs>
0: the good news is that, uh, Turkish Jared Barret. I'll be, I'll Albright Albright Albright. His son-in-law
1: is now the minister of finance <laughs> 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 and he's like 30. Right. Which is just aw- just awesome. Yeah, he's his son-in-law and probably intended to be his heir apparent, not that we want to talk about Turkey like it's a monarchy even though <laughs> it kind of is. Fun oh, not at like all nowadays.
0: Not at all. Um Turkish Jared has imposed interest rate corridors, which has stemmed some of the bleeding of the lira. But in J- he's pretty much the same as Erdogan in that he's like everyone's coming for us. Everyone wants to kill us. Actually, we we kind of want more inflation in some area in some ways. Um, the entire Turkey crisis is interesting because it just it pretend it portends for everyone's future. And I don't just mean that in like, that there's gonna be sort of runaway inflation, this era of low rates is done soon, that the era, the second era of cheap money in our modern age is done soon. I also mean sort of the political weirdness. Because Turkey now, I mean, we all laugh at like conservatives, you know, using straws and fucking whatever <laughs> to really, really get the liberals. Right. But Turkey's, Turkey's just doing it now on a microeconomic scale. There no, no more iPhones because the the they're lich. bad in America. Yeah. None of that. What can you give a little background to the Brunson issue and this in the like sort of last year? Of the conflict between two normal men, yeah. Donald Trump and <laughs> Tayyip Erdogan.
1: Well, the I mean, Erdogan's hope when Trump was elected, and I think only recently has he been completely – disabused of this was that he and trump would be buddies because they are very similar personality types Mm -hmm. Uh, and he definitely didn't get along with barack obama for for many reasons Uh, so you know they had they they had they met with each other they, they took pictures together smiling and you know holding up peace signs or whatever uh but for a while, it looked like at least at that level, at the interpersonal level, that the two of them were uh getting along very well. But Turkey has been um i mean you know people who have listened to previous episodes that uh, I've been on will know that Turkey has been melting down since uh twenty sixteen and the attempted coup uh against Erdogan and he's been arresting thousands of people uh, all allegedly with connections to the deep state and or to Fethullah Gulen's organization. Uh, he's continually kind of badgering the United States to extradite Gulen, uh, which I still tend to think is more for show than, than a real desire to get him back.
0: I don't think he actually wants him back. I think he I knows mean, how too much, much, yeah, how he knows too much in, and- how much can you blame on Gulen when he's gone? Well,
1: that's that's the other thing. Yeah, he's a very convenient scapegoat. But the the main thing for me is I, I think because Erdogan and Gulen were allies for quite a while, and I think yeah. Gulen knows where some bodies are buried, so to speak, uh, that Erdogan doesn't want anybody else to know about. And so I don't, I I have, I still have a hard time feeling like he really wants this guy to come back and stand trial, but it's a convenient thing because Erdogan bases a lot of his, uh, power projection and legitimacy in his pitch to Turkish voters, for example, around the idea that he's the one man standing up for Turkey against the rest of the world. And it's an us versus them thing. So the Gulen thing is very useful for him politically. Um, Related to this, Turkey has been arresting – it started with – embassy workers, U S embassy workers who were locals, who were Turkish nationals working for the U S embassy and picking them up and alleging that they had ties to Gulen. And some of them may have, I mean, the Gulen organization was a, po- a popular thing for a while in Turkey. Um, but you know, that raises, that raised some eyebrows at the, the state department. And now he, or then he arrested, uh, this man, Andrew Brunson, who's a U.S. pastor, who's been living in Turkey for a while. I think he's married to a Turkish woman. Um, Um, And, you know, this kind of set off some – sort of the normal alarm bells that that get set off when a US national is arrested under kind of dubious charges, the, the, the Gulen thing. But it's particularly resonated in the evangelical community because Brunson is a pastor. And so this is something that Mike Pence, whose political career pretty much depends on the evangelical community and his chances of succeeding Donald Trump whenever that happens uh, depend on the evangelical community. Uh, it's really become a, a potent issue for him and Trump. You know, I mean, you can convince him that anything is is important if you have five minutes with him. Uh, so Pence has worked Trump into a bit of what seems to be a bit of a lather over this guy, uh, and Trump two weeks ago, maybe, or I, I I think maybe two weeks ago, announced kind of abruptly on Twitter that he was doubling. The steel and aluminum tariffs that he's imposed on pretty much every American ally at this point, but he was doubling them for Turkey due to the Brunson situation. Uh, Brunson's still awaiting trial; he's under house arrest. He was in jail; they they transferred him to house arrest. Uh, the U.S. has been trying to get him released altogether so that he can come home, even though he would still face charges in Turkey. Um, But that the the, Turkish court just a couple of days ago rejected yet another attempt to get him released from house arrest. Uh, And so Trump imposed these extra tariffs and that took what had been a a sort of steady decline of the lira and kicked it into overdrive. And the lira has lost, uh, you know, something like a quarter of its value. It's kind of bounced back up over the past couple of days, as Turkey's tried to reestablish itself, and they've announced some some measures to counter it, uh, but it really kind of tanked for for several days after Trump made this announcement, uh, and that's taken relations to a to a new low. Really, I mean, lower even than they uh, they were when Obama was in office, and, and they were pretty ragged at that point.
0: Um, this is this is sort of neither here nor there. But I've just been kind of interested in the whole time because you really can't get a straight answer about this anywhere, can you? You can't ask either the people who make Erdogan their Abbey on Twitter, nor can you ask, like, you know, deplorable deplorable magus, smelly <laughs> hillbilly, you know, whatever other barb we're now using to identify ourselves. You know, is Brunson a spy? I don't know. Probably not, I, but it's like, you know, the CIA is dumb enough to use, like, a fat old pastor as an asset, but it's just like, I don't know, I just feel like probably not, you know? It, I, I wanted to know what you thought. Yeah,
1: I mean, I, you know, again, it's one of those things, like, did he have connections to the Gülen organization? He may very well have, but the Gülen organization up until uh the two of them the Gulen and Erdogan fell out with one another, which was, you know, maybe uh eight or seven or eight or nine years ago. Uh up until that point, the Gulen organization was a perfectly legitimate organization. It was a very popular yeah. uh organization in Turkey. It had government backing. Um and, you know, they didn't it didn't really become like illegal essentially or criminal behavior to be part of the organization until the coup which they've blamed or the attempted coup which they Erdogan has blamed on Gulen uh and you know has been going after anybody with who can be connected to the organization uh, ever since so you know it's perfectly plausible that that this guy at one time had some connection to the, the Gulen organization, but that – probably the chances are whenever he had those ties, it wasn't against the law to have ties to the Gulen organization. So you're kind of going after him for things that weren't against the law when he was doing them. Um, you know, could he have been could have been more than that? Could he be some kind of an agent? I guess I don't know what you the CIA or the Gulen organization would have gained from having this Christian pastor <laughs> in their fold. Like what what access did he have to anything sensitive? I I don't know. I couldn't I couldn't even begin to to speculate.
0: Right, that's the thing. It it, it just his total inability to get close to anything of actual value makes me think there's both no way he could have been connected and then both like, oh yeah, maybe.
1: <laughs> right, that's you know, like just we're knowing we stupid enough to try something like that. Yeah.
0: yeah, it's just, I mean, I feel like it won't be another, it'll be another 10, 15 years before we really understand what happened with that coup. will we'll, we'll even start to scratch the surface of it because every Turkish person I talk to, like, and they're not... Kooks. they're not like conspiracy theorists they're just they just have this baseline of being very suspicious and angry at America which you know who can blame them and they sort of run the gamut politically but their their refrain is like this is absolutely the coup in 2016 absolutely cia this is 100% right. them
1: well this is and, i mean this is an artifact yeah. of turkey's entire 20th century history which is which was up until erdogan came to power just you know, basically any civilian government was just filling in the gap between military coups uh, and eventually things would go in a direction. Either the government would start getting too religious for the military or they would it would start getting too leftist for the military and the military would step in, have a coup. Sometimes they didn't even leave their barracks. They would just send like a memo like it's time for you. <laughs> – they'd send a memo to the prime minister like it's time for you to go and that would be enough. Uh, but this is a repeated thing. And so you, it's sort of like the people who talk about the deep state here and you think, well, that's a little paranoid. But uh, not, not to say there's not a deep state in the United States. But in Turkey, the deep state isn't that – deep. I mean it's, it's deep but it's not under any kind of uh, – they don't really operate in the shadows or at least they have – they didn't for uh, – decades until Erdogan came to power, they were very open about the fact that they will interfere in civilian politics if they don't like the direction that the country's going. And so it, it kind of has bred a, a conspiratorial mindset or a suspicious mindset, I think, in Turkish politics that you just have this kind of uh, history that tells you that these sorts of plots happen and you have to be constantly vigilant about it.
0: It's sort of hard to see how things get worse from here. But, you know, they always can. (laughs) (laughs) Always – life always finds a way. Uh, But I do sort of feel like – I don't feel like uh, American-Turkish relations are going to get better in the traditional sense of the word better. No,
1: I wouldn't think so. But
0: but I do think they're just going to have to kind of stabilize because – I mean Erdogan's Erdogan's bet is just that we need them so much for NATO. Right. And I'm I think he's kind of right on that. He's also hedging. I mean ever since the Qatar the guitar crisis, he I mean he's sort of been pivoting towards this like new axis that has been created ad hoc this Qatar, Iran, China, Russia, which obviously have different goals but
1: Right, but they, they all sort of have a right. anti-West kind of orientation that he's he's kind of gravitating towards.
0: Right, and he's he's. I mean, it's not fully confirmed yet, but it seems that Qatar has provided them fifteen billion dollars in liquidity. Yeah,
1: they said uh, the emir said uh, he, he went to Turkey. I think. Maybe yesterday, the day before, and uh, told Erdogan that they were going to invest 15 billion in the Turkish economy, which is, you know, basically buying friends uh, in in the way that Gulf states sometimes do. And I mean,
0: and also Turkish Jared did go to see Kuwait, which Kuwait has been known to just avoid playing the Gulf state, you know, GCC NATO game. Throughout, throughout its entire history. Kuwait tends but, to be a
1: little more independent. I mean, you sort of have yeah. the the Saudi bloc in the GCC, which is kind of defunct anyway now that the, the Saudis and the Emiratis have decided it doesn't really matter anymore. But you have yeah. Saudi Arabia and the UAE and Bahrain, uh, who tend to be kind of in lockstep with one another. And then Qatar, even prior to the... The blockade and the the crisis there always kind of was a little more independent. Kuwait was a little more independent. And then there's Oman, which has always been very much kind of interested in doing its own thing and not following the Saudis. I think – I mean I think if there's going to be a next step in terms of the deterioration of the U.S.-Turkish relationship, the likeliest place it's going to happen is in Syria. Uh, because you're we've already seen the Kurds trying to um, cut deals with bashar al Assad and Damascus uh, that would involve you know them getting some level of autonomy in the, in northern Syria in return for kind of a joint command or a, a you know joint effort to attack Idlib province, and then uh, the parts of northern Turkey that are uh, really under Turkey's direct control at this point. that Turkey's basically trying to annex, in a practical sense. Um, and you know, the the question of how the U.S. is going to respond to that, I think, uh, depends to some degree on where U.S. Turkish relations are. If if they're good then I think the U.S. would try to discourage or might try to discourage the Kurds from making a deal with Assad. Uh, if they're not, then I think the U.S. will kind of say, you know, go do what you need to do. Uh, now, there's no guarantee that there's a deal to be had there because there's no, there's been no indication from Assad that he's willing to allow any kind of autonomy to the Kurds. Uh, but, you know, that's that could be the next shoe to drop, I guess, that would really – uh, damage U.S.-Turkey relations?
0: I mean, in 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 a practical sense, I mean, America can obviously, you know, just take any nation we're at odds at still and just basically just kind of ruin their whole time. We still have the power to do that. But in another practical sense, Turkey's biggest trading partner, or its uh, biggest trading partners are, you know, Fucking Russia, Germany, Norway. And I'd say like a few years ago, you could look at all their trading partners, sans Russia and go, well, these are all American er allies and they'll fall in lockstep. But (laughs) maybe not anymore. Now (laughs) fucking all bets are off. And this entire, you, the the Turkey thing, you know, you you pull on one thread of it and you just, you do kind of see the entire future of the world and it did, it made me think about something and it made me think about all the people who would look at something like this or look at our, uh, our relations, America's relations with the EU or, you know, whatever, you know, Trump demanding that NATO give us gas money or whatever. <laughs> and they'd go, this is unprecedented. I can't believe this is happening. This never happened. And it's, it, it's made me think a lot that so much of this international order it has been around for such a short time and and i think everyone's very tempted to sort of blame this unraveling on trump and i i can't really say that he's helped but really what it tells you is this whole thing was going to be impermanent no matter what yeah i mean it tells and you that, this whole thing was so fragile right it was exactly. so fragile all it took was like just one. It, I mean, this isn't even true that it just took one old guy. All these seams were coming unraveled for years. They just weren't in the forefront as much, and no one, no one really wanted to talk about it as much. Uh, but these seams were unraveling the entire time because these were impossible tensions, and even even if you do want to pin this on Trump. If it takes one old guy who basically governs as a Heritage Foundation Republican but just says crazier things right. most of the time, <laughs> that's it? That's all it took?
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean it's, it's an international order that was established because of the Cold War. It was established to deal with that particular global circumstance and then when the Cold War ended – everybody just kind of agreed to keep the same institutions in place and like pretend they still had a reason to exist until we could come up with a new one and the new one now of course is the war on terror or you know it's becoming the the war against Iran I guess um, but you know they don't necessarily work in the in the, that new set of circumstances. Um you know you w- it, it, the interesting one of the interesting things when you you talk about this being sort of a a sign of things to come, the Turkey crisis is Erdogan, one of the things Erdogan has talked about is uh, instituting a new system of doing commerce where uh, Turkey will deal with other countries on a direct bilateral way, currency to currency, instead of everybody using the dollar, as most countries do, to conduct their international current uh, commerce where, you know, everybody converts their money first to dollars and then they do their business in dollars and then they bring it back in and, uh, you know, if they want, they either hold it as dollars or they bring it, you know, convert it back to their own currency. Erdogan's talking about setting up a system where he and Ru- you know, Turkey and Russia will trade with one another in lira and rubles, or Turkey and China will trade with one another in lira and uh, the renminbi. And it's, you know, I don't, this to me is the sign of where things could go that would be a massive upheaval to the, the global economy uh, and to the United States. Um, I don't think Turkey, as much as Erdogan likes to pretend, I guess, that Turkey is the, the indispensable nation, you know, the, this great world power. It's just not. It's not strong enough or important enough to really cause a, a change like this. But if the world decides that, and, and, you know, when I say world, I mean like China and Europe, basically, uh, decide that the dollar is not stable enough or the United States is not stable enough or Donald Trump is you know pissing everybody off enough uh, that it makes sense to uh, to dump the dollar basically and either find a different currency to serve as the global reserve currency, uh, the euro or whatever uh, or to I mean it's a little hard for me to imagine that you could have a robust kind of international trading, System where everybody's just using their own currency and like trying to work those deals out on a case by case basis. Uh, but if if they dump the dollar and go to something else, then that's uh, you know the the use of the dollar as the main reserve currency has underpinned so much of American hegemony since World War II. Uh, that that this would be, and it's underpinned so much of the global economy, you know, for the second half of the 20th century to the present. Uh, that would be a huge change. That would be something that uh, you know. I, I think it would. It's hard to predict, or at least it is for me, somebody who's not an economist, uh, to predict exactly what that would do. But it would be a major. It would be a, very much a, a a new world if that were to happen. Not,
0: I think there is sort of this general pivot away from America in that in, there's been a desire among a lot of states for a while to move away from the dollar as the world's chief reserve currency. But I thought this – something I read before this episode that I thought was interesting, and I was reading about – there's Erdogan's weird theory of inflation, which is just – it kind of reminds me of Trump talking about dropping the bowling balls on the cars in Japan. <laughs> but when you, do, you know, when you talk to his advisors, you get like, there's a more articulated view of it. And one of his advisors wrote in a Turkish newspaper about a year ago, uh, said he said that the Phillips curve, the model that suggests that inflation always goes up when unemployment goes down and vice versa, it doesn't make sense anymore. That the sort of austerity and inflation constrictionist uh, view of international finance and international trading doesn't work anymore, and that it just has to be increasing infrastructure and increasing employment, and you know there could just be constant double digit growth in these large emerging markets without undue inflation, which is kind of insane. But it also it also <laughs> speaks it also sp- speaks to something which is. Everyone, I think, I feel like everyone is slowly pivoting away from. And I feel like this was more of an EU and IMF thing than an American thing, but it absolutely served our interest a hundred percent. The general, the you know, twin snakeheads of austerity and inflation constrictionism.
1: Yeah, I think. I mean, austerity. No one wants has, that anymore. Has run its course. I think people are fed up with this sort of fetish for uh, austerity economics is the the only way to to run your country. Um, you see that over and over again, and you know, in the, we're seeing it in Iran. You're seeing it, you know, in Turkey. You see it in Greece. You see it, you know, other parts of Europe. Um, yeah, I I, I I would agree with that entirely. Um, it's it's sort of uh you know the the west you know it's in, in sort of capital w west uh and it's been the imf in europe you're right more than it's been the united states has really been pushing this agenda uh and for a long time the imf was the only game in town in terms of international financing but now you've got china as much bigger player uh they're offering uh, the the belt and road initiative where they're, you know, financing these massive infrastructure projects in in developing countries, which comes with onerous loan terms and the possibility that China can wind up owning big chunks of uh, some of these countries in the future if they can't make their payments. But it's sort of a, you know, what do I what do I want to do? Do I want to, you know, build stuff now, And have the guy that comes along after me or the government that comes along after me worry about paying it back? uh, Or do I want to institute austerity now and have people coming out in the streets by the thousands demanding my resignation at best, if not, you know, throwing me in prison? Uh, And for a lot of leaders, I think, especially in the developing parts of Asia and Africa, there's just no choice there. They're absolutely more inclined to, to go with what China's offering. Well, I think, yeah,
0: more and more people are sort of realizing, like, why would you – why would you put your neck on the line for America? Why would you do it? Why would you risk any popularity at home in the in the event that America is going to follow through on a deal they made with you? Right. It just makes – it's a calculus that makes no sense anymore.
1: Yeah, and I, I mean I think – the flip side of this which isn't certainly the IMF's goal or anything like that but this kind of this idea that you can have double digit growth and just keep building infrastructure and everybody's going to just chip away and be employed and stuff like we're going to cook the planet at some point uh, literally yep. and you know that's the thing that i think gets lost the 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 real concern that gets lost it's not you know i who gives a shit about austerity economics but uh the the harder you push and the the more dependent you are on fossil fuels to make this double digit growth happen the the worse things are going to get uh and they're going to it's going to it's starting already at the margins i mean you know parts of west africa you've got massive displacement you've got you know droughts in the middle east you've got the threat that uh, people are going to start to be displaced by sea level rise i mean this is stuff that's already happening
0: yeah um well a few decades from now i can't wait till we are all shuffled into mega metropolises in the upper midwest (laughs) northern europe we could grow papayas in the great lakes region tropical
1: saskatchewan Uh, and yeah
0: uh, erdogan is president of like a part of the Netherlands that houses 300 million Turks, <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's also part it's also part of like Greater Serbia. Everyone lives in like just every nation is one neighborhood in like three parts of the world that can host human life. <laughs> there are like ten immortal people, and it's Erdogan, Jeff Bezos, and Trump. Yeah,
1: yeah there you go. I can't. Wait. Sounds like a sounds like a fun time. And we're still gonna be doing the show.
0: <laughs> we're gonna be like, God guys, there's an exciting new candidate in human human hospitable region subprime seven. <laughs> <laughs> and if they if they can get if they can reach human assembly, they'll get the same immortality serum that we gave Donald Trump.
1: <laughs> I can't wait. Oh
0: man. This rocks.
1: <laughs> I'm imagining Trump like <laughs> Trump holding like two doses of the immortality serum and Jared's like oh hey dad uh, do you think I could get one of these and he's like no fuck off <laughs> you you lose again Jared I need a backup You're, you, Jared you've gotten the climate sickness like, you fired Don Jr. and Eric are standing there like oh, are you gonna give us one and he's like no fuck off I need I love I need the idea that
0: like these. yeah Donald, Donald Trump becomes immortal through science and <laughs> it's just like one of the three rulers of humanity but the Mueller investigation is still going on <laughs>
1: The Resistance breaks in and grabs a vial of the Immortality Serum yeah. to give to Robert Mueller. Yeah, there's some – it just this never
0: ends. There's like some compromiser like Rod Rosenstein. is like we're going to give Robert Mueller half a dose of the Immortality Serum. And if he can finish the investigation in under 300 years, then he deserves the other half. <laughs> it just never ends. We're just going to have the same storyline forever while everything gets worse. Nice. nice. Awesome. Uh, speaking of things getting better, uh, Saudi
1: Arabia. Oh, God. Firing on all cylinders. Oh, man. They're they're on it, man. They, they are <laughs> on top of their shit. Their PR game is on point. So uh, sort of buried in the economic talk, uh,
0: I feel like I'm seeing a repeat of 2007 and 2008 in a lot of respects with at least the cheap money crisis – and the cheap money drying up a little bit and these little rifts in the systems exposing. But I'm getting flashbacks because Saudi Arabia, they keep, uh, not really announcing it, but cutting oil production and making people wondering how much oil do they have left? Do they
1: know what they're doing? What's going on here? Right. But then promising that they're, gonna, they're yeah. they, they have the capacity to, raise it to to account for whatever, you know, decline there is from Iran with the sanctions. And I mean, they keep like saying, oh, yeah, don't worry, we'll we'll cover the difference. But there's no evidence that they're actually doing that or able to do it. So Saudi Arabia, they've had a hell of a
0: month. They had a huge rift with Canada. My favorite thing they've done in this Canada rift, everyone's going to talk about threatening to do 9-11 again, but... My favorite thing is that Saudi Arabia does in Canada what they do with a lot of Western states, which is pay for slots for students to go to school there. Right. For their own students. Like just they just fully fund it for the university. Right. And they pulled all their students from Canadian universities, which is hilarious because they already paid for it. Right. It's like, oh, we showed you. But it it, it made me sort of Saudi Arabia going nuts made me think of Israel, our other great friend in the region,
1: <laughs> arresting Peter Beinart, yeah, and just, Peter you know, Beinart into a room and interrogating yeah, him like waterboarding and basically left, leftist insurgent Peter
0: Beinart. <laughs> and it, everyone, I feel like everyone's tempted to talk about the rifts they see. You know, America, EU, Turkey, America. Just, I can't believe refuting with our allies now, but I feel like the real bellwether is what our two biggest sort of imperial proxies are doing in the region and it just shows this huge degeneration this huge insanity not that they weren't bad before but it just there was this level of discretion and sort of tr- trying to maintain this level of flying under the radar with a lot of the things they did and now it's just out there it's just completely out there they 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 have achieve this full born open madness, Saudi Arabia and Israel. And I think people are tempted to say it's because of Trump because Trump does give them an even fuller license than previous presidents. But also, you know, going back to what we said about the international order, these are, these are also very young things. And you look at both of them. You, one's an ethno state, one's a fucking monarchy. Uh, how long was this going to last anyway
1: <laughs> yeah i mean I, I i don't discount certainly that um the effect that trump has had i mean i think you see yeah. even the sort of milk toast kind of occasional Mild denunciations of Saudi and or Israeli excesses from Washington, the kind of things that you know like people like me would roll their eyes at and say, "Oh you know who gives a shit like it's a you know why why bother saying anything at all uh, These things apparently did have some effect on in terms of keeping those countries uh at least more discreet about what they were doing and not quite so uh frenetic about everything. Uh, Trump is, is of course, you know, just kind of totally in the bag for both Israel and Saudi Arabia, and it does, I think, feed a sense of invincibility that they that both countries feel like they can do whatever they want, kind of right out in the open anymore, and it, it doesn't matter. Um, you know, the the fact is, you're right. I mean, these are both relatively young countries in the big scheme of things, and. They weren't going to survive. I mean Saudi Arabia is not going to survive as the Saudi Arabia we know and love – When oil prices really start to decline, and and we saw, you know, there was sort of a preview of that. Oils come back up to, you know, in the sixties or uh, around seventy dollars a barrel. But back, you know, uh, not that long ago, several months ago, when it was kind of hovering around forty dollars a barrel for a while, uh, that I think, you know, really freaked a lot of people out in Saudi Arabia because they don't have. Uh, a system that can survive that kind of shock they don't have the uh, ability to manage the saudi population if they can't afford to kind of pay for everybody's happy compliance with uh, you know the very restrictive a uh, religious authoritarian monarchical uh, way that they need to run that country uh if if the money runs out and they can't continue to support the saudi people in that manner then the saudi people uh, the, the, the concern is that the Saudi people are going to start to wonder why, you know, uh, why am I living like this? Why am I looking over my shoulder for the religious police every five minutes out of the day uh, if there's no upside to living, you know, there's no like financial upside or economic upside to this? Uh, so that's, yeah, I mean, the, you know, the Saudis have been uh, f- fundamentally, you know, operating a system that uh, cannot survive in the long term. It's untenable. The Israelis, uh, you know, th- th- again, th- that's a that's a country that can survive, but it has to do so if it, if it wants to maintain itself as the Jewish homeland. Which, of course, they just passed their nation state bill that makes it quite explicit that that there's not going to be a, a multi ethnic component to the state. Uh, then the only way to do that is through apartheid and and you know, sort of a hard apartheid in terms of the Palestinians in the occupied territories but a a less kind of apparent but still very pernicious form of apartheid when you're talking about Arab Israelis and Druze Israelis and you know sort of the the non-Jewish Israeli population um, you know so that the the conceit that Israel could be both the Jewish homeland and uh, fully democratic state in the absence of any willingness to allow the creation of uh, a functioning Palestine. Uh, and there's no indication, there's never really been much of an indication that Israel was interested in that. Certainly the government that it has now has no interest in that. Um, without that, you know, it's, it's impossible for those two things to continue to coexist uh, without one of them Going away, and it seems clear that it's the the democratic, you know, uh, human rights aspect of things that's going to go away before the the uh, the the idea of the Jewish homeland goes away. Yeah, um, I don't know. I think it will get better. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, I mean, so what? What? It, what? What does the future hold for our, our two misbegotten sons? Because for Saudi Arabia, I just feel like. The, the royal family will try to hack it for another couple decades. And then it's both going to be impossible to maintain welfare spending. They're already cutting into it. They're already instituting austerity, some austerity measures. And there will be like a little fight for some rump kingdom. And also most of it is going to be physically inhospitable to human life. Right. And I feel like most of them are just going to, they're going to get up and go somewhere. They're just going to fucking leave. They're going to fuck off. It's going to be this weird – it's going to be this Somalia in the desert within our lifetimes, uh, just barely sustaining human life. The royals will live in exile talking about how, you know, if only I was able to do this, we could have done that. And there will just be, you know, like a trillion dollars in liquidity floating around the world funding God knows what. <laughs> and – for Israel, yeah, it's just gonna keep it's just gonna become Jewish. Turkey as Turkey become keeps being Turkey.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think for the Saudis, it's almost surprising to me that you haven't already started to see an exodus of the people who can really afford to leave the wealthy elite, the the princes who are not Mohammed bin Salman, because the longer they stay there, you know, the the chances that they're gonna all get. Rounded up and tossed in the the Ritz Carlton again for another shakedown. Uh, go just sort of increase. So it's somewhat surprising to me they haven't already left. Um, I think you know Mohammed bin Salman will try to keep things going. He's going to have to hope that if he finally decides to take some major economic steps like. You know, doing an IPO on Saudi Aramco, he's going to have to hope that that brings in a lot more money than I suspect it will. Um, how the fuck?
0: How are you going to get $2 trillion yeah.
1: worth of people to invest in an oil company? <laughs> now! How? It's, it seems to be, uh, it seems unlikely, but, you know, <laughs> yeah. that's his hope. Um, and then I think, I mean, you'll see a, an attempt uh, to kind of placate people with more flashy freedom esque kinds of things like uh you know we'll go from uh you know the, now we have movie now we have cinemas and you know maybe we'll start having concerts or maybe we'll have uh you know a little more uh, interesting art scene or something. Uh, he'll try to do that for a little while, where these things that sort of have the appearance of giving people more freedom without actually giving people more freedom. Uh, in the meantime, mm-hmm. he'll keep throwing critics in prison, as he's been doing. Uh, but that's that can't last forever. I mean, when the economy really starts to tank and uh, the welfare state has to go, uh, people aren't going to put up with that anymore. And you're right, the people who uh, have the means, I think, will at some point decide this is you know uh, between the the sort of social situation and the environmental situation. There's no point to me staying here anymore, and that but that'll leave this sort of the sort of permanent Saudi underclass, the the laborers, the uh, mm-hmm. the Shia, um, you know, the the people who can't afford to leave, who are also the people who. Uh, are brutalized by the Saudi system uh, more than anybody else. Uh, And, you know, that's not going to be a a conducive environment for the the monarchy to to survive. Well,
0: um, I'm
1: excited for all of us,
0: all of our cool friends from around the world, everyone to live in like a city-state the size of Venice within my lifetime. (laughs) You know, I just never – I never thought about this at the start that eventually we're – there's going to be like five hospitable places left and everyone I've been like laughing about because it's not my country. I've just been focusing on the people in my country I can laugh at as our immediate problem. It's just going to be all of our problem. We truly will become global citizens just in the respect that, you
1: know, the mayor of your town will be Mohammed bin Salman. Right. right. Yeah, exactly. We're going to be yeah. – we're all going to be struggling for the same uh, last few ounces of water basically. The best part is like all the
0: like most blameless people are just going to be stuck in the most hu- unhospitable – like the Shia are never going to be able to leave the eastern promi- uh, province. Right. the
1: yeah, I mean this. You know the 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 really pernicious part about climate change is it affects all the people who are already getting shit on in this you know sort of global uh, economy, this sort of global capitalist economy. They're just going to get dumped on harder, and it's the effects on people who are doing quite well for themselves will not be as great because they're they've got the resources to adjust. Awesome, <laughs>
0: absolutely. All- oh God. I honestly did not expect it to be as much of a downer today. I feel like a lot of the recent episodes had, and I was like looking forward to this one. And then
1: <laughs> I think it
0: was a good episode. It's just what a fucking downer, uh, Jesus Christ! It's, not, I'm sorry, a, it's everybody. not a pretty place.
1: It's not a pretty place.
0: But it was a good episode. and That's what Matt, content is—the only thing that's going to keep us sane when we're <laughs> it's all the only living. We have left. In, yeah, when we're all living in Wisconsin, <laughs> and your neighbor is like some AKP cop psycho. <laughs> <laughs> and then, like, the guy at the Homeowners Association is, like, Prince Turkey's son <laughs> or Don Donald Trump
1: Jr., who's, like, a sub-emperor of... Or, like, Naftali Bennett is the, the head of the, like, local uh, crime patrol, <laughs> like, the neighborhood yeah. crime patrol. <laughs> S-
0: Silvio Berlusconi owns the local news station that serves a media market of 500 million people in, like, one county. But... <laughs> You'll be able to listen to Chapo Trap House, read, and that's the way it was on Patreon. Watch Chapo FYM on Twitch and YouTube. That's it, man. Uh, we'll, we'll probably write another book. I don't know. Derek may, may write one. Oh, man. Oh, God. That's, that's a scary <laughs> thought. Yeah, that's the really scary thing. Not any of this, just writing another book. <laughs> having to write one, anyone having to write one. Well, Derek, you got anything
1: you want to plug? Uh yeah, actually. I'm I've been doing this project and I kind of I'm kind of hoping that more people will get interested in it. I'm uh, it's about a a man named Ibn Battuta who was a Muslim guy, just kind of a uh regular guy from Morocco who lived in the 14th century. Uh, and he set out in 1325 to go on Hajj. Uh, and he wound up spending the next twenty four years traveling the world. Uh, he traveled farther than Marco Polo. Uh, he went from he went on Hajj, then he traveled down the east coast of Africa. He traveled into uh, the Ottoman, or well, not Ottoman. I guess at that point it would have been the Seljuk domains. He traveled into the Ilkhanate, or what was left of it, the Mongolian uh, kingdom in the in Iran. Uh, Traveled to India. He traveled to China, and then went back. And after that, traveled. He went back to Morocco, and then took a trip uh, to Spain. And then he took another trip down to to, uh, Timbuktu and Mali. Uh, And so he's like the probably the most well traveled person, at least in the pre kind of airplane or pre age of sail era uh and it's a he he left us with a, an account that some of it is probably exaggerated it was all kind of done from memory uh, but it is an account of all the places that he visited and what the world was like in the 14th century. Uh, and so I'm following his trip. Uh, I've, I've got a Twitter account set up for it. I've got a Facebook account set up for it. I'm writing essays occasionally at uh, on uh, another website I've set up for the, the project. And it's a, a, an interesting period in history, because it's sort of not that long after the fall of the Abbasid Caliphate, which sent the Middle East and, and much of the world into kind of a political tailspin, and it's also at a time when the Mongols, w- who were the the sort of glue that held a lot of the world together after the Caliphate fell, uh, sort of the the idea that descendants of Genghis Khan were the new uh, you know the new ruling class they were collapsing as well. Uh, in this period, and as you go through the 14th century, they all the different Mongolian Khanates start to to fall apart. Uh, so it's a period of a lot of change that really had a lot of a great impact on uh, the way the world developed uh, subsequently. Uh, and so I'm you know kind of writing about all that kind of stuff. And if people can, if people go to uh, my Twitter page, you'll see uh, I, I you know the uh, link to the uh, the Twitter account, but it's it's at the Rihla, uh, T-H-E-R-I-H-L-A-H. Rithla means journey or travel, and it's uh, the name of Ibn Battuta's travel log. Uh, so, you know, if you go to Twitter, if you go to that Twitter account, uh, you'll see links to the Facebook page, you'll see a link to the website, and I'm kind of covering, you know, little... I'm doing tweet by tweet kind of as he, as his progress, you know, as he progresses through the trip. And then if you go to Facebook, I, I have a little more detailed accounts with some quotes from his recollections. And, uh, then there, you know, I, I do these essays periodically where I go into a lot more detail and context about the world that he was traveling. And so I, I'm kind of hoping people will get into that.
0: All right. Yeah. We'll include links to all that in the description to this episode. Uh, Oh, also, before I forget, um, the uh, Stony Brook uh, Tenants Union. Something we've covered a little bit on the show, and I, I've been uh, posting about. People have uh, messaged me about it. Uh, they are raising money to help pay for the cost of lead and mold testing, and we'll include a link to that also in the show description. We also may be working on talking to some people from there in the future. Uh, but, yeah, thank you again for joining us, Derek. I won't say it was an
1: uplifting episode, but I think it was a very <laughs> I don't good want one. wasn't too much of it. Like, people are going to be uh, too depressed to, to get out of bed tomorrow. But, you know. Ah, they'll do it anyway. <laughs> nah. but, uh, yeah, and, you know, I'm happy anytime to come on, Felix. Thank you so much. Our thank pleasure. You.